a podcast, resource, community, and digital media platform. This is Shmoney Radio. When I went to New York when I was older, a, a lot of us in the beginning, we, we were waitresses. We had something else. We had to have a part-time job because we were not making it full-time as a model. You guessed it. That clip is from today's very special guest on the show, Kathy Tong, the author of and real-life not-quite-supermodel. I'm your host, Anastasia Barbuzzi, and welcome back to Shmoney Radio. We've all seen them before, those come-up stories in the movies that seem utterly impossible and so far out of reach. Well, hate to break it to you, but Kathy Tong has one of those stories. On one fine day while working behind the seafood counter at a Canada Safeway, Kathy Tong was slicing fish and probably mentally preparing for a test at Simon Fraser University. Then, a modeling scout walked in and asked if she could take her picture. From there, the rest is pretty much history. After joining the brood of 90 supermodels that we all know and love, Kathy racked up a high-profile client list that includes De Beers, Tommy Bahama, Barney's, Oil Level Lay. You've probably even found her smiling back at you from the shelves of your local beauty department on Clairol's hair color boxes. She was the spokesmodel for Neutrogena in North America and faked French and German well enough to land the gig across the pond in France and Germany too. She played Catherine Fitzgerald on ABC's One Life to Live and she's even worked alongside actors like Jack Nicholson, Diane Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Lindsay Lohan, and Chris Pine in films like Something's Gotta Give and Just My Luck. Oh, also Blue Jasmine. If the mention of Not Quite Supermodel has you confused by now, let me explain. Kathy recently published her first juicy novel, Not Quite Supermodel, which is based loosely on her story as a young model just trying to make it. Kathy and I met through a mutual friend, and I was fortunate enough to get to read a first draft of Not Quite Supermodel. From there, again, the rest is pretty much history. But I'm so happy to be able to have her on the show today to give everyone an inside look at what a young model's life was and is like in the early 90s and in 2021. Besides offering insight into how the industry has changed over the years, Kathy lets us in on what her personal understanding of finance was like before diving into a very precarious career as a model, life in New York with basically no budget, what hopefuls should be aware of when entering the crazy, crazy world of fashion, and of course, a little bit more about her book. If you've ever been curious about the worlds of high fashion and acting, this episode is definitely for you. It's also one for the dream chasers and the aspiring freelancers who might just need a little bit of a push, especially when finances get rough. With that, get ready to meet Kathy Tong. I mean, to start things off, I feel like anyone who's read the show notes or anticipated this episode coming out, they know a little bit about you already, but would you like to kind of give an introduction of um, who you are? Uh, well, yes, as people may have guessed, my name's Kathy Tong, and mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to be a fashion model and an actress in uh, an industry that's, well, in a crazy industry for the last 
28 years of my life. And I just finished my first novel and I'm sort of moving on to sort of the next trajectory of my career. As you mentioned, you've you know, been lucky enough to work as a actress and model in the industry. What led you to pursue that career and what you do now in the first place? Well, <laughs> that's really, you know, I, I was working at a Safeway um, in Canada, in a small town in Canada, on the West Coast. And um, somebody had come into the Safeway and asked if they could take my picture. And that picture was brought to an agency in, in Vancouver. And they contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in being a model, um, which I had never thought of. I'm sure many people say have sort of the same story, but I had never considered it. I didn't know anything about fashion. But at the same time, I thought, wow, this is a huge opportunity for me to be important. You know, just <laughs> big dreams of being special. This is it. I'm going to be extraordinary for the first time in my life. Um, and at that time, you know, people modeling, I think it, there's still sort of an air of mystery and glamour about it. But back then in the early 90s, when people talked about models, they were really important and special. And so... It really wasn't an interest in fashion. I, you know, I, it's funny. I, I would have to say I started for all the wrong reasons. I really just thought it was a chance to be important. And I wanted other people to think I was important. How's that for honest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what, though? I think it plays into so much of the Instagram culture now, too. It's like mm. what, what people have termed them as Instagram models doing besides like, you know, trying to be of importance. I mean, there's obviously your beautiful men, women, whoever you identify as out there that it's just like, there's no other way to put it besides this person is literally born to be a model. Like, where did you come from? Um, and why am I just seeing you now on Instagram? But right. also there's that side of things where it's like, what other, um, I guess, purpose is there to posting photos of yourself out there for everyone to see kind of thing. And it's kind of interesting as to how much that has changed, right? Like people can now put themselves out there. Whereas before, maybe when you were recruited as a model, that really wasn't an option. No, it didn't exist. The social media element of, of the fashion industry, sort of the media industry period, there wasn't one. You had an agent that represented you in, in every aspect. And you were, you know, unless you became a superstar, Everyone was in their own rights important. The photographer had more clout on the set than you did. The art directors did. You know, your, your, your agents even did. You really were, there were times that you just felt like cattle. You were not that special. It was, it was, it, you really had to earn your stripes to be, to, to, to be paid well, to be, to be considered. And, and now, like, as you said, anyone can post pictures of themselves. I know a lot of people that are sort of my contemporaries, we had a really hard time with it when it started where people, our agents were saying, you have to have an Instagram presence. People need to know your personality. And for a lot of us, we were kind of private people saying, well, I don't, I don't want anyone to know me. I don't want to be out there saying, look at me, look at me. Even though that might've been, you know, my, my intentions when I started as you get older and, you know, grow as a person, you, you want your privacy, you know, you, it's just a job. You learn, you learn as you go on. It's just a job. So 
so that that big change was tough, right? Announcing here, not that the girls that are doing it now aren't doing it extraordinarily well and aren't finding a balance between, you know, image and individuality. But I, I think that's really, really a tough challenge. And kudos to the ones that are doing it because I, I think it's one of the most daunting things that are are facing young models today. How private can you really be in the first place when you are using social media to begin with? But there's ways of doing it. And then there's just like, yeah, the models that are out there that are sharing everything with the world. And it's kind of like, where do you draw that line, I guess? Uh As you mentioned, when introducing yourself and how you got into modeling in the first place, your book, Not Quite Supermodel, is an even juicier read for the fact that both the plot and Alex, which is uh, your protagonist character, mm-hmm. are semi-autobiographical. And the book is based on your come up and life as a young model, you know, transplanted from a small town in Canada all the way to New York City. And though I highly recommend everyone gets a copy, especially since all the proceeds are being donated to the World Health Organization's COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, which I think is incredible, by the way. Can you kind of give us your Cliff Notes version of the story? Well, I think you summed up some of it quite well there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say it's definitely loosely based on my personal experience. Um, I I did not actually go to New York until I I went to Europe first, but just staying in theme with Alex's journey. uh, She is working at a fish counter at Canada Safeway in a small town, and she's she imagines her life is pretty safe. She has, you know, a nice family. She's going to Simon Fraser University, which doesn't guarantee anything, but it, it does seem like a safe route to to go in life. And she has a, a job that pays really well at Safeway. And when somebody offers this chance to be a model, you know, she's terrified. But she does think, hey, this is my chance to be special. And she wouldn't mind throwing it in the faces of all those mean girls from high school. But you got to keep in mind that this kid, poor Alex, she does not know a thing about fashion. She's not social media savvy. And she's, she's never been anywhere except to England with her family on vacation. So nonetheless, with all this going on in the background, she sets off on this quest for stardom, right? And when she gets to New York, nothing is in any way what she imagined. She doesn't know anyone. She's never actually met her agency. She's only ever met this model scout. And her first meeting with her new agent does not go well. So, you know, coupled with this external pressure of the high stakes, high high adrenaline fashion scene of the big city, she also has to reconcile her inner struggles and her own neuroses. And I think, you know, every young person is going through that as they're trying to find their way in life. But there is a huge catch because Alex has one major psychological issue that makes her everyday life a huge challenge. And in this sort of safety of her hometown and the little bubble she's created there, she can manage this neurosis, this, this psychological problem that she's got. But outside of that environment, she is constantly teetering on the edge. So her most humiliating moments are captured by, you know, total strangers on video for all the world to see and they keep popping up on YouTube. So she's, she's, she's got to overcome all these odds in this world, in this, in this mad world that she's never, ever seen anything like it before. So can she do it? 
will she find success there or is she headed for a complete meltdown? I've got to know, is the neuroses that you describe, was that something you experienced? The one particular thing that we're discussing, her major psychological issues? Yes. Yes. It absolutely is a real thing or was for me. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I'm not going to give anything away here, but I just, the very interesting part of the book to me because I never, I never heard of anything like that, but it's completely understandable and even more like believable the way you describe it throughout the book. And I mean, in some situations, you can almost understand why this is like such a a large issue for Alex herself. But it's funny because Kirkus reviews, they they reviewed the book and I, Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say, well, there was favorable moments, but certainly they were pretty, pretty brutal in their last few statements. And one of the things they referenced was that she needs psychological help. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. You know what, though? I think it just adds to the character's humility, I think, because Mm. for how, like, let's face it, strange (laughs) this, this tendency is there are people that, you know, deal with these things every day, these strange tendencies or fears, whatever they may be. And yeah, it's just, I guess, one of those things that if you've never experienced yourself, it is like, whoa, this is something that actually someone would struggle with. And think it's even better that you can kind of laugh about it yourself. Thank you for that. Well, you know what? Age helps. And it's true. <laughs> Oscar Wilde is 100% correct. The only normal people you know are, are well, there aren't any, right? That's the ones mm-hmm. you have, the people you haven't met. No one's normal. Everyone has got something. Everyone's got something strange that, that is just unimaginable. And that's what makes the world an interesting place. The premise of the book, Alex being discovered behind the seafood counter at a grocery store, you know, the fact that that does translate to your real life experience is pretty, pretty crazy because it is something that you would hear about in the fiction novel. It's kind of that fairy tale beginning to a really great story, but it actually happened. Part of Alex's character is being a student at Simon Fraser University. So I'm curious to know, what were you studying at Simon Fraser University when you were discovered by this model scale? So I had only been, that was just my first term or semester there, I, French mm-hmm. and theater. I wanted to teach French. Do you speak it today or was it something you were just kind of beginning to learn? You know, incredibly poorly. It's amazing how once you drink wine, how much better my French gets. (laughs) (laughs) And you do say that, you know, by all shapes and standards, you were also way too old to start modeling and at 5'8", kind of short. So Mm. can you describe what the industry was looking for at that time? Well, I think 5'9 is really the cutoff. That's that's really what they wanted you to be. 5'9 is... you f- you'll fit most of the clothes. I mean, 5'11 is what they're looking for for runway modeling, but 5'9 was about as short as you could go. And they did like to, the younger you were, the better, right? You could, you'd start training. I mean, by the time I had started 2021, 20, the girls my age had been doing it for a while. They, they knew what was going on. They knew how to move, but they had been around for three years, three or four years. And some, I mean, listen, I think it would have been brutally grim to start that young. I, I can't imagine, that, again, my hat's off to those girls that got into it at that super young age and, and survived and excelled. I don't think I could have. Why is that exactly? 
again, it goes back to being young. If you are 16 and just everything is so intense, you know, your hormones raging through you, you're not fully developed as a human being. And so to be thrown in the madness of the fashion scene where, you know, you're being scrutinized on a daily basis and I, I hate to say normalcy because it's, you know, just like I just tried to remember that Oscar Wilde quote and failed miserably in representing it. Um, there's none. There's none. There's no, there's, there's nothing safe about it. And to be, I don't know, constantly judged already. I, I mean, think about high school, how tough it is there. It's magnified on steroids. Just imagine your life being magnified, like under a, a looking glass from a super young age. It's, it's got to be brutal. I, I found it brutal at, like I said, 21. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think being such a young girl at, at 20 still and entering that industry with not only not a lot of knowledge about it, but, you know, being from like a small town in, in Canada, that exposure, that immediate exposure to everything must have kind of hit even harsher. I think there's also like a luminosity and mysterious glamorous appeal to the life of a high fashion model even today. But when you were discovered as a young girl in a small town, what exactly went through your head in those moments? And how did realizing your potential and believing you could have a chance make you feel in the midst of the criticism you faced? Well, I think the first thing is the culture. I, I don't think you can possibly prepare yourself for the culture shock of, of New York City. Mm. It's, I mean, I, you're in Toronto, so it's not even like you're coming from a city. You're coming from a suburb. So just the, the shock to your system of that is already sort of whew, unbearable. And I think that there's always, well, for me personally, there was constantly a nagging self-doubt that this couldn't possibly be true. And I was always, you know, seconds away from from failing, you know, just, I'm sure a lot of people have said it about themselves many times, but you just feel like an imposter and deep down you're, you're concerned. Everyone's going to figure it out quick that you don't really belong here. And you, there's, someone's made a massive mistake. And, and I think at that time too, like I said, because other girls my age had been around, they sort of seemed to know what was going on. And I was terrified to ask questions. I didn't want anyone to know that I, I didn't know how to model. I didn't know how to move. I, you know, I, I didn't know how to dress. It, it, I didn't know anything. And I was, I was definitely afraid to ask. And when I did make a decision, or I don't, just some big purchase I would have made, you know, at the time, the Gap was sort of a, a place to shop. And I, I thought I was fantastic and I couldn't wait to show off my new outfit. And I do remember my real agency at the time saying to me, don't you have different clothes? And I just tried to pretend that I'd just casually worn that to the agency by accident, you know, and, and leaving in tears, like, shit, oh, sorry, gosh, gosh, I mean. <laughs> it's um, okay, you can swear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I, you know, I, I'm a disaster. It's just one more step to them knowing the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could have asked, can, how about for some guidance here? Can somebody, but the, I can't put that all on my agency. I, like I said, I was, I was too afraid to ask. I didn't want anyone to know that I was terrified and didn't, didn't know what I was doing. And Was modeling ever something that you believe would guarantee you that monetary success of very successful supermodels? I think it's something that is enticing and definitely is convincing for maybe a lot of young girls who, you know, believe they have a chance in industry. 
well, they certainly pitch it that way. They, uh, your, your agents make it sound like that, you know, that, yeah, there is this golden ticket that you're buying into. So I think there is a part of you that's hopeful about that. I, I wouldn't have stuck with it if I, if I didn't think that at the end of it, there was, you know, a pot of gold because it, it definitely wasn't easy, certainly in the, in the beginning. So you, you, you were definitely hopeful because you did see uh, the girls around you making exorbitant amounts of money for, for, for mm-hmm. and listen, it is hard work. I'm not taking that away from anyone, but there certainly was back then enormous amounts of money to be made. You didn't have to be, not even the Cindy Crawfords and the Naomi Campbells and the Christy Turlingtons of the world were a whole other scale, but there was still a ton of money to be made. And I do think that's changed a lot. How so? Well, because of social media, for one thing, people... So at the time in the early 90s, there were so many catalogs. I'm trying to think of what we have at home, like Reitman's, for example, Mm -hmm. Hudson's Bay Company. Um, I heard Reitman's is filing for Chapter 11. I know the Hudson's Bay Company is, is also not in good shape. But every country in the world, you know, Germany... England, Spain, America had their own version of these these giant stores, right? Mm-hmm. That produced print catalogs. So uh, there was uh, enormous demand for models to do. You know, if I don't even know if you remember, because you might have been a bit young, but you know, you used to get the Hudson's Bay catalog or the Sears catalog in the mail, and it was just enormous. It was almost yeah. like a fashion magazine. So. The daily rate for, for doing a catalog at that time was, was, was huge. It was, you know, $3,000 a day. Wow. And even, yeah. And so there was a time when Ocean Drive in Miami, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Now it's just all sort of lucrative hotels and you, you can't park on Ocean Drive. But in the early 90s, it was just RV after RV after RV from you had the Spanish team, you had the German team, you had the British team. And girls would just go from, I mean, for six weeks, they'd be in Miami just on doing these catalog shoots for the catalogs in England, the catalogs in Germany, catalogs in France. Wow. Yeah. And that doesn't exist anymore because they don't have that. They, they do have it for uh, obviously online, which is where everything's going, but the rates aren't the same. You know, it's definitely, mm-hmm. it's definitely a different experience. Today's translation would be all the models that you see all the time on sites like Pretty Little Thing or there's so many now, uh, Fashion Nova. You see all these consistent models who I guess are of like a different look in the industry, but they're on these sites consistently. And I can only imagine that they're there for like days or hours at a time. And whether it be like a warehouse or an office doing these shoots. But yeah, it would be interesting to know for sure what the running rate is for a day of of shooting now compared to the $3,000 per day for a catalog shoot. It was insane. Uh, That was really, to to be a a model in in that era, you really could make a lot of money. So now I know know there's still like uh, Ann Taylor and, you know, I have friends that that still work for, you know, Chico's is still another one that pays really well. But again, as the social media thing has taken off, like you said, there's girls that are getting paid to wear people's clothes. And so, you know, the, the market is saturated. Not to say that there weren't always a lot of models, but the market is now 
saturated and there's so many people there still are agencies that represent I, I would say like an, an elite sort of group of girls that still work for the few catalogs that are left um, mm. that you still fly off to exotic places you know it used to be insane you would you would fly to Mallorca you'd fly to South Africa I know that that does still happen but not to the same extent as it did back in the 90s what would you say that your level of financial literacy was before entering the industry? <laughs> there wasn't one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but something's really important to note. I know it's really changed for like for for certainly your generation was and this was something that was really hard when when I was writing the book because a lot of, you know, my editors said, "Well, well didn't she have bigger dreams than Safeway? Didn't why would she want to stay at Safeway? But the thing is, back then in the 90s, Safeway, like the airlines, it was a career job. We were making 23 bucks an hour, 24 bucks an hour. And that was, yeah, like I was saying, 1991. So we were the United Food and Commercial Workers, local 1518. And and at the time that I started there, it's when they were still hiring so that it was a, a lifetime job, right? You had incredible benefits, which at home, I mean, it's, it's different than the States, but you know, that you had dental, you, you had a pension. It was a lot to walk away from Safeway back then. I mean, my dad was, was first of all, didn't want me to get involved with any of it, but to, to leave Safeway and school was insane. It was just the most insane, ridiculous thing to do on a whim that maybe you'd get lucky with modeling. That kind of goes into the next question I wanted to ask you here about your everyday life as a young New Yorker, because I think New York has this gritty climb the ladder to the top kind of reputation. What was your everyday life there? Like a young person who was just trying to keep up with everyone? Well, I think the thing about New York is even just walking down the street, everything about it feels like you're in a movie. When I had moved in the 90s, I didn't, I just, I had only stayed in New York for three months. I I didn't move there full time until I was 30. But when I did go, your agency fronted all your expenses. I know there's, this still happens because you have these sort of superstars that people see and they see a huge future for, but so my agency was fronting all the expenses and I was living in the Gramercy Park Hotel which has since been renovated. It's not quite the same as it was. You, you might know that hotel yeah. from Almost Famous. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, <laughs> I mean, the whole experience was surreal. You know, and the thing about New York is it's choreographed chaos, right? Everyone yeah. is hustling. Everyone is sort of, you're just, in, everything's a, is a struggle. Getting into the, the Starbucks. I mean, I guess Toronto, it might be the same in Toronto. I haven't been to Toronto in years, but, you know, that's a fight to get a Starbucks. It's a fight to get a, a place in the subway. There's, but the, the manic pulse of the city is, it's intoxicating. But it, initially, it's really intimidating. And it's, it was super overwhelming. It was very, very tough to, to navigate it. And, and, you know, there were no iPhones at this time. You were walking around with this map, even though New York is pretty straightforward. The avenues run north and south and the streets run east and west. But yeah, just the manic pace of it all while trying to, to, to figure out this, this industry that's so foreign to you, you're just constantly hustling. There was not a, a bunch of time for me to enjoy it. I wasn't one of these girls that had a, you know, uh, was sightseeing. I really, I just felt like I was in a pressure cooker constantly. 
but it is something you, you come to love. It just becomes, there's no other place in the world that you can live. It's, it's magic. I completely agree. When I first moved to Toronto, I kind of felt the same feeling, but New York is just a different level. And I mean, New York is one of my favorite places to be in the world. And I think what you described as a manic pulse is, mm. I love I love the way you describe that there. It's like a, it's an energy that runs through you. And even though yeah. it can be a little overwhelming to navigate sometimes, it just kind of like draws you in. You crave it in a sense, I think. Mm-hmm. At least that's my own experience. There are things in the book that Alex's character drives for after seeing things her competitors are wearing or doing that makes them a more desirable model. And so one of those things actually is an expensive designer bag, something that represents luxury, being successful enough to like afford such an expensive item. Did the industry kind of impose these things on you? Obviously, there's something that you come in contact with every day if you're working as a high fashion model. But if they did set a precedent for what you're supposed to look like or have, how did you deal with that? Well, I think that the thing is, you know, when you're, you, you, oh gosh, I don't want to say you want to look like everybody else, but the the girls that seem to be the most successful that were working all the time, certainly did have all the right things. Now they could also just have been fashionistas and loved, you know, I don't know. And, Hermes handbag, whatever it is that rocked their world, they might have just loved that particular item. But as you said, they they were in a position to buy it because their career was going so well. So I didn't have pressures for clothes. Definitely, uh, you, you had to be put together in a certain way when you went to a casting for people to really recognize you. So having the bag, you're not going to get the job because of the bag. But I do remember going on a casting once and. Uh, and the, the casting director, when I came in, I wasn't 100% sure when they looked at me and my book, but then they sort of stepped back to take in my outfit. And I could see that what I had chosen to wear, and this was much later, was the right thing. That was enough for them. Mm, okay, well, you're cool enough. That, that outfit's cool enough to make it into my studio. So mm-hmm. not for everybody. I'm not going to say every job and not every client, but there were some that were certainly affected by yeah, what you were wearing and the bag you were carrying. I can't get my head around designer handbags. I have <laughs> that have a, a fetish with them like they do shoes. I, you know, I have a sneaker fetish, as you may know, but mm-hmm. bags, no. I, I just can't get together with $1,200 bags, but it's okay if you can. I, I just, it was like, I'd rather buy a bunch of sneakers. What was that outfit that you needed to be wearing in that casting? I mean, like head to toe, what were you wearing to fit in with the other girls in the waiting room? You know, the, your standard casting outfit is going to be skinny jeans, unless they ask to see your legs. Skinny jeans. Um, a lot of girls would come in sneakers and then switch into some some heels, scandalously high heel shoes. And usually they want to see your skin. So some kind of, you know, tank top, just like the nondescript model uniform. And then, yeah, with one of these, you know, happening handbags, I can't even think of a label at the time that would have been the, the one to be wearing. But you, what, would, what would have been the brand name of jeans then? All I can think now is mother and all of the sort of denim that's happening now. But something that showed your figure, something that um, enhanced it, right? So definitely the, the, the tighter, the better, but not tacky. And heels. That mm-hmm. was sort of your, your standard outfit. 
Do you think girls in a similar position to you were well-informed of what they were getting into by the agencies that brought them to the city in the first place? For me personally, at, at that time, n- no. Nobody prepared you for anything. Not me personally. There might have been some girls that were. But I do know now at agencies, they have a, a specific, like a, a runway class. They also have, I don't know, I'm sure you've heard of Coco Rocha. Um, she has a model camp. I mean, she is just, she's a PhD in movement, this woman, she's surreal. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's things like this model camp. There's things like the the model coaches, the stuff did not exist in the nineties where girls, yeah, they give you advice about money and how much money your agency is going to take and, and what's expected of you as a model and how to move as a model. I mean, these things, there's some girls are just naturals or like dancers you know or or they were dancers they were figure skaters or they were gymnasts and they have this command of their body that's just you know really intoxicating to watch but when it's your turn to take a picture after these girls I mean good god talk about about intimidating right there it's a reason for a meltdown so there were some people yeah that just had a natural sort of you know, some people just have a natural ability at some things, right? And mm-hmm. so it's changed now. I think there is a lot of guidance for girls. You know, I think there's even books like Modeling 101. But mm-hmm. for me personally, no, I just felt like I was thrown in the deep end. Here you go, go. But again, I didn't ask any questions because I didn't want to look like I didn't know. Which I think is great that Coco Rocha, for example, is doing these camps and talking about things like money and how much your agency is going to take and how much you're going to make and et cetera, et cetera. You know, that kind of work can be very precarious. And mm-hmm. especially as a young woman, I'm interested in what you think some of the things are that young women should be aware of when they're looking to pursue a career in the media the thing about any anything anyone who's freelance, I know that you're freelance, so you can really appreciate this, is you mm-hmm. don't know when your next gig is coming. So, and especially in America where you don't have medical and things like this, most of us, when I went to New York when I was older, a, a lot of us in the beginning, we, we were waitresses. We had something else. We had to have a part-time job because we were not making it full-time as a model. It is very, very hard to have a career full-time as a model. So that's something to keep in mind when you when you're getting into it. You know, it's 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 anything freelance. It's a really tough gig. So how, how bad do you want it? How 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 much are you willing to sacrifice for it? I, I worked at Safeway. I worked at McDonald's. I, I had a lot of jobs. I was a waitress. But modeling is it's a really hard job. You know, it's a, it's a high pressure job. It can be great. Uh, the rewards can be be incredible. As an actress, for example, same thing. If you love your craft, you can be so fulfilled just by the work that you're doing. There are some people who could never, ever in their lives imagine being in a safe, secure, stable job. They would feel suffocated by it. So there are people that are willing to risk not having a safe financial future to do something that they, that they love or are super hungry for. You know, that's why you still see actors that are 50 years old that are barely making it, that are waiters, because pursuing that passion at all odds just just means more to them than anything else, right? So (laughs) just know how bad you want it. I will say that in terms of, and again, it's changed dramatically since I started, but 
one of the areas that, where I was really successful was commercially. Commercials, again, back in the day, even in the early 2000s, paid exorbitant amounts of money. So every time you, a, a SAG commercial, which was a commercial that ran nationally, so chances are you would have seen the commercial in Canada also, you would get royalties every time the commercial ran. So you'd be getting these these. It was just an exorbitant amount of money. And on top of that, once you made a certain amount of money, you were able to join the Screen Actors Guild, which is the actors union. And SAG and AFTRA have now joined together to make sort of a mega union. But through that, you, you do get a pension and you had your health, you had your medical paid for. So let's just say I, you ended up paying, I don't know, $600 a year for incredible uh, health care and, and dental benefits. So uh, this was a huge safety net that, that I was really fortunate enough to be a part of because I did have a lucrative commercial career. Again, the union, not for television shows and, and film and TV, but it ha- has definitely become a lot weaker. And there is not a lot of commercials that are shooting that are SAG anymore. So something that truthfully you would have made, I don't know, like a, a beauty commercial, let's say, I don't know, a vino, this, this could be like a $350,000 job that would just, you would have shot for one day, but they ran the commercial for, I don't know, three years, right? They don't really pay that anymore. And if they are, if they're doing huge campaigns, the only people I can think of nowadays that don't use super famous actresses, Avon, you know, I can't, I can't think of people that don't use celebrities anymore. You know, models used to be celebrities. Now celebrities are celebrities. So again, that piece of the pie is becoming smaller and smaller. You have faced a very different path than a lot of women who, especially when you started, were much younger or, I guess, taller than you as well. That's um, for sure. Yeah, but it's 28 years later and you're still working as a model and an actress. Looking back, what would you say that your break was? Well, I would say Neutrogena was really... You know, I sort of took some time off in my late 20s because it is the pressure was a little bit too much for me at that time. Just the weight and all of it was way too much. And then when I went back to New York, sort of right after 9-11, it was really, really a tough time. I was waitressing and I met some great, great people like like anything in life, right? The people that you meet change, change your whole world. And I was working at a restaurant and just everyone was so supportive of everybody. You had actors working there, people that wanted to own their own restaurants. And I suppose that was my big break was Neutrogena for, for Europe. I flew to Europe and I shot a Neutrogena commercial for France and Germany. I had I'd shot a few commercials before that, but things started to roll after that very consistently. I, I, I left the the restaurant I was working at, I still close to all those people, adore them. And then I ended up doing a Neutrogena campaign for North America. And then I landed a part on a soap and things started to happen after that. And you've had so many unique experiences throughout your life and career. So I want to know, but I'm sure anyone listening would also love to know. What are some life hacks you can give the audience? I mean, whether it's living in a city like New York, um, writing, or keeping your personal finance in check while working in a position like a model or an actress. Well, I'm going to say take care of your health, number one thing. 
absolutely make that the priority no matter what. I know it's so tough as students, all of us as younger people think that we're, you know, um, robotic almost somehow and we can survive everything. So take care of your health. That's really important. Do not get into debt. Do not <laughs> max out a bunch of credit cards. It's so it's it's so impossible to get out of with the rates the way that they are now. And be prepared to be uncomfortable at, at many points, whatever trajectory you're going on now, be prepared to be uncomfortable and get together with being uncomfortable and learn to, if not like it, find a flow with it because you're on a path you know, there's not, there's not a set way. Like I would say that becoming a doctor or a lawyer, I can't even imagine that what you go through with school and the pressure and, but it's pretty set from A to B to Z, you know, you kind of know exactly what you're supposed to do when you're pursuing the path of an artist, you have no idea. And when you think you're going from point A to point B, you might end up at, you know, point X at one point and have absolutely <laughs> no clue how you got there and how you, what the next step is. So the unknown, being okay with the unknown, definitely try and save some money. It's so it's 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 really really tough to do when you're living paycheck to paycheck. And try to love it. Try try try. You're you're only gonna be young once. It's people always say that, and you can't really grasp it until you're older. To really enjoy even everything that goes wrong, and really live in the moment of it. You know, you're, you're young and you have the world at your feet. Just enjoy it. The madness of it all. Enjoy it. Just to kind of wrap up, if there's one thing that you could tell the girl who may or may not know that she has a dream and a passion to pursue, you know, who's working away at her part-time job, maybe she's worried about whether or not she should take a chance on herself. What would the one thing you tell her be? You're absolutely worth it. You're absolutely worth it. No matter what, no matter what anyone tells you, no matter what, what you may come across that makes you doubt yourself or think otherwise, you are absolutely worth it. And you owe it to yourself to pursue the passion and the fire that's in your heart because you will never forgive yourself if you don't. If you don't try, you will have to live with the fact that you didn't try forever and you absolutely are worth it. Your, your voice needs to be heard. Whatever it is, it, the world wants to hear it because never before in human history, what you're about to set out to do, no one has ever done it before. It's brand new because it's you and it's your individual self that you're, you're bringing to the moment. And that in and of itself is extraordinary. No matter what happens, that's extraordinary. Thank you so, so much, Kathy. I really appreciate you coming on the show. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. If you took something meaningful away from this episode, please consider smashing that subscribe button on whichever podcast platform you listen through and maybe even check out the ratings and review section too. If anything, send word down the grapevine. I really do appreciate it. And as always, please see the show notes for more details on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week. This is Shmoney Radio. Yeah. <laughs> is this thing on?